Hello, welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about world, or video game world to real life world mapping sizes. The, the title's not a work in progress, but this concept of how, like, video game space maps to real world space. Yeah, th- this is a hard thing. It, it's... It's something I've thought about for a long time, right? But it's also something that I would kind of have a hard time, like, describing to someone. It is the sense in which a video game will make a small map busy and seem bigger than it is, if that makes sense. And, like, the different kind of techniques that get employed in that way. So Mango has been playing Death Stranding, which was his kind of window. My window into this has been The Outer Worlds, right? Like, something that we talked about on last week's podcast is that The Outer Worlds game world feels smaller but also dense right it has the same kind of stuff that you would see in a fallout or a skyrim but like the you know all of the zone all of the interesting points of interest on the map or whatever are scrunched together so they're just like right down the road from one another um and that was the thing that made me think of this. Your your experience came from Death Stranding, which I have not played. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, I've thought about this before, right? Like, like in, in yeah. WoW, Iron Forge is like, you know, 17 houses or whatever. Like, there's like, you know, tens of people in Iron Forge. is supposed to be this bustling city. But, you know, there's an amount of that you can usually kind of ignore. Um, but in Death Stranding, um, it's, this is kind of brought into sharp relief because you're walking along – uh, what's supposed to be America. And when you make, like, the game's package deliveries, for those of you who haven't played, uh, when you make a delivery, it tells you how far you've walked. Um, and it'll be, like, you know, two kilometers. Like, okay. But then, like, when you open up a new spot on the map, it'll, like, point, it'll, like, bring up a, a map of America, because um, it takes place in America, and show you where in America that is. And, like, that two kilometer stretches, brings you from Washington, D.C., to what looks like approximately like columbus ohio or maybe pittsburgh if i'm being generous <laughs> it's just like it's, it's hundreds and hundreds of I, i've done yeah. that trip right like you know from uh from washington from baltimore really to uh to pittsburgh and it's you know it's it's four hours right like in, in a car on yeah. a highway right like that's hundreds of miles yeah no absolutely and you know this is something you walk in like 20 minutes um and it's in like I said, normally it doesn't bother me too much, but just the, the fact that, like, they gave me a number and it's just so stark on, like, distances that I, like, kind of already intuitively know really brought it into sharp relief for me. Okay, and so, all right, so let's say Death Stranding is kind of on, like, the bottom end of this. Uh, is there, like, a top-end example, right? Like, what is, what is a, an example of a world that, you know... Obviously, it's only like 20 square miles or whatever the case may be, and it fills like an entire country, but it just feels big and populous enough to sort of make it work. Do you have like an example of something along those lines? I've got a couple different ideas. One, there are like, there are games that like basically solve this problem by not giving you the whole world, right? Like, um, I never played a ton of it, but like Dragon Age 2, I believe, kind of did this, right? Like... You, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very hub-based. Yeah, and it kind of, like, implies a larger world without actually giving you a world map to walk around. You know, that's actually very fair. It does do that. And it even, like, even inside of the hub, right, you kind of have, like, the harbor districts. You have the uptown markets. You have, um, you know, the, I, I can't, they're called, like, the gallows or whatever, like, this undercity or whatever. But even all of those places 
just kind of feel like pinpricks in a way, right? Like you're in a couple of blocks or whatever of a neighborhood. And when you go to another neighborhood, there's like a lot of, there's also a lot of movement there. And so even if you're not, you know, like it doesn't seem to suggest that you're seeing the whole city. You're only ever seeing a piece of the city and that's just for the hub. And then out in the world, you're only ever seeing a piece of the world too. So all of that kind of like implication definitely works to its favor. And, and the other big one I want to point out are the Division 1 and the Division 2. And that's because, like, even though they have, like, less city blocks than they should, the blocks that they do have are, like, appropriately scaled. So things feel about, right? Like, it feel, like when you walk a block in the Division games, it feels approximately like a block in uh, New York and uh, Washington, D.C. It, it's a little bit fudged, but, like, the, the size of the approximate block is right. There's, like, you know, two where there should be, like, 40 of them. Um, and so... Even though, like, if you kind of, like, take it all at once, you've it kind of breaks the illusion while you're kind of in the moment, especially kind of in the early game when you're just kind of, like, exploring. It feels fairly true to life in that way, if that makes sense. No, that, that actually makes – this actually reminds me of Rockstar games. Um, specifically, you know, like the Grand Theft Auto games, right? But actually, the game that I feel like might have the most true-to-form map – in my head, in terms of a real-world map, right? I think it's kind of easier to fudge this stuff when it comes to the fantasy stuff. Might be the game Midnight Club Street Racing. Did you ever play this game? No, I don't think you Yeah, so Midnight Club Street Racing was a Rockstar game from the 2000s. It was a PS2-era game, um... And it was, uh... And it was defined because, you know, you were literally racing on these, you know, streets, uh, that were populated by kind of like cars and stuff like that uh, i'm pretty sure the setting of the first midnight club street racing was uh new york city and then london uh yeah so it was new york city and then london but the new york i know that that, that you know there's no way that new york was to scale right um just because obviously new york is you know uh you know, that's 24 square miles. Imagine doing something like that in a PS2 era game. That'd be impossible, right? But, like, because so much of New York kind of gets, like, scrunched down into pinpricks in a way, in the same way that, like, um, I, I was describing with the, the Dragon Age 2 sort of thing, right? Like, Times Square is only a couple of blocks, right? And you can just kind of, like, have Times Square, or you can have the Wall Street Bull, or you can have Battery Park or something like that, and then you can sort of scrunch the intervening, right, like, kind of nameless streets in between, and get a kind of an approximation of the city by sort of stacking all of its landmarks and then shrinking all the space between those, you know, the space between the Empire State Building, the World Trade Center, um, Times Square, Madison Square Garden, whatever the case may be sort of thing. Um, which probably is what helped that game feel sort of like real. Also, this game came out in like 2000, so this is like 20 years old at this point, and I probably don't have the best memory for it. But the interesting thing is that a much more recent Rockstar iteration of this... Um, uh, Grand Theft Auto V, which is set in what is effectively Los Angeles, right? I live in Los Angeles, and I understand all of the different places that they're referencing. And so maybe just because I'm familiar with, like, the city and how, like, you know, Hollywood becomes Beverly Hills, becomes Santa Monica in, like, the real world, um, 
that always also felt very like wrong to me because you would be, just be doing these. I mean, part of it is that you're driving on on the streets at like a gazillion miles an hour, and you just like <laughs> there's well, not no, like seriously, right? Like you blast from the Pacific Palisades or whatever up to you know what is effectively Glendale in um you know the uh, in the Los Santos world essentially glendale being kind of the northeast end of uh los angeles the pacific palisades being sort of like the northwest end being able to do that in like a minute and a half just feels insanely weird it's so 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 strange but it's actually kind of doing the same sort of thing that midnight club was doing where it kind of is you know uh pulling in the different landmarks that you would expect right for uh, i mean they call it vinewood um instead of hollywood um pulling in those kind of different landmarks and just kind of getting rid of a lot of the nameless neighborhood between them. Yeah. I wonder how much of it is, is like what you're expected to kind of remember, right? Like you're expected to kind of interact with all these areas in an open world game, like uh, GTA um, and kind of like pass through them multiple times and mm-hmm. in kind of like ways where you're directly interacting with them. Whereas in a racing game, even though you might play the same track a bunch of times, um, you're kind of just zooming past it and you, you know, you're never wa- like, you're never kind of like interacting with the buildings in the same way or interacting with the location in the same way. They're just kind of like dressing in a way. Um, like like I said, I, I never played like uh, The Division 2 like super extensively, but I imagine if I kept playing it, I'd kind of start to feel like the world shrink, right? Like I felt that way about World of Warcraft. Like no, first- that definitely and, – and that happens in World of Warcraft depending on how you traverse – right, like – Part of what made Classic WoW interesting when, uh, you know, like when everybody was on uh, the big Classic WoW hype train at the end of August was you get a mount so quickly in like WoW at the moment, right? Like my level one characters, because like if you get enough of the heirlooms, you get an achievement and that gives you an heirloom mount that you can use for the first 20 levels, right? Literally no new character I ever make will ever be mountless, right? I can always put them on a mount if I want them to. And even then, you know, getting to level 20 is super quick, and you get your mount super quick anyway. So even if you are a new player, you're still, you know, coming in and grabbing uh, a mount pretty, you know, pretty quickly. Uh, But the interesting thing to me is that as you kind of scale up from running to ground mounts to flying mounts the world definitely does sort of shrink right like and now that we live in a world right like 8.2 introduced flying to uh the battle for azeroth zones zandalar and kultiris are now much more traversable in a way that they like weren't necessarily before kultiris specifically because kultiris is designed as an alliance kind of like leveling zone the density of alliance points right like most of the roads are between alliance towns and that's what and, and this speaks to its favor right like this made going to cool Tiris when you only have a ground mount really interesting because you kind of have to avoid the roads in a way and you have to sort of be like sneaking around which makes sense you're behind enemy lines kind of thing um but now in a world where i can just like get on my mount and fly around that same sort of feeling is like lost a little bit um and it's obviously lost for the convenience of being able to fly right uh, I don't want to like devalue. I, I don't. I don't think one is better than the other, but it definitely market, markedly changes the interaction you have with the world when you are relying on, for instance, flight points to be your defining mode of transit from place to place, rather than you know getting on your mount and just flying. Does that work with world PvP on as well? 
What do you mean? Like, like yeah, yeah, you, you can fly with World PvP. Okay, because I, I was gonna say like that, that. I imagine that like significantly harms that, right? Because like I, I remember when I when I was playing Battle for Azeroth, one of the most fun, some of the most fun I had was running around with a pack of other hordies, like hunting down alliance, right? Like, uh, there is an item that all members of World PvP get. Uh, that is a. I think it's called like the net gun or something, okay. but it, it forcibly it forcibly demounts you. So if you are, you know, if you're trying to gank somebody and they get on their mount in time, you can just shoot them with this item and they'll drop back down and then you can fight them for real. Okay. Uh, so I don't know how much of the you know how usable that is. The thing that sucks about world PvP now with flight, um, as far as I understand it, is that is actually kind of the opposite case, right? It's not that somebody can just take flight and get away from you, and that sucks. It's actually that you can be doing something, and then a bunch of people f- dive bomb you. Essentially, oh, can can um, fly out of, the, can fly out easily. Air, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. I mean, you know, and like. I, I don't think that there's a ton of difference between that and some and a bunch of people, you know, running at you with your ground mount. In most of these situations, it's a group of dedicated gankers who are going to dedicated gank you kind of no matter what. Uh, but, you know, yeah, it definitely does change the dynamics of world PvP quite a bit. Um, but, yeah, just kind of, like, back to the main topic, right? Like, that, like, like I, I definitely agree with you that flying mounts definitely shrunk the world of Warcraft. Because I, I do remember, like... When I first played the game back in vanilla, um, like it, it, like you know, like the Baron seemed infinite, right? Um, oh yeah, um, and stuff like that, right? Like just especially when you were in hostile territory, right? I was playing a night elf, so I, I ended up running all the way through the Barons to like uh, Gadgetzan at some point, or uh, mm-hmm. what, what's the other a Ratchet maybe? Ratchet, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and like that just that like that that felt like expansive. I also I also wonder how much of this is because. You know how spoiled we are for, um, for like like the the genre, right? Like, World of Warcraft was one of the first games I ever played that kind of had that amount of expansiveness, right? Like there was like that and like Oblivion, um, uh, and so. But now that like I've played like a ton of these games, I wonder how much of this is just like, well, I've I've seen been here, done that, and been there, done that rather. Uh, and, you know, I think that's why they enable flight uh, to me. Like I had that same feeling about. Zandalar when I came to Zandalar and I love you know I love the the world design of the Battle for Azeroth zones um it's funny because so something that's interesting about Dazaralor which is the horde capital right and the alliance capital in Boralis the alliance capital is the 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 story of the alliance coming to Kultiris is that the Kultirans kind of hate the alliance um because in Warcraft 3 Jaina Proudmoore allied with the horde and just defeated her father's big navy right which is kind of the last that we had seen of cool Tiris. it was like a you know it was kind of a big thing so they left the alliance and they kind of have a, a very standoffish relationship with the alliance right so you kind of enter the alliance as a fugitive in a way um and you are kind of relegated to this section of boralis called the trade winds market which is sort of like a you know like a seedy flea market sort of thing right like you're not even inside of the city you're on you're out of outside of the walls or whatever um and that's kind of the right like that's kind of the aesthetic that you're you're going for but in Dazar lore it's the opposite right like you rescue the princess from the alliance and she brings you right to her father king rastakhan and he gives you a piece of the palace as an embassy right to the horde out of kind of like gratitude 
Um, and something that you would see a lot in sort of like complaints about BFA threads is the difference between those two things. Because in Boralis, everything was really localized to trade wins, right? All of your professions, the ship that you do your, you know, uh, your war campaign stuff on, the battle, uh, uh, not battle fronts, war fronts um, in the game. Like all of that stuff was right around Boralis and it was really like you know, nexist in that way. Whereas in Dizarra lore, you know, you're at the top of the, you know, at the top of the pyramid was where the, your hearthstone was set. And it was where like the cooking trainer was set and the emissaries were. And then down at the bottom of the pyramid, you know, to the left a little bit, that's where all the profession trainers were. And then back down into the Harbor is where the ship was to your missions. And you know, the, the war campaign, and the war fronts were all there. And so, like, Boralis was all super localized, and Dizarre Lore was very spread out. And there were a lot of Horde players that were kind of expressing a frustration, like, what the fuck? How come I hearth to the Great Seal and then need to take a fucking flight point to go do this thing, right, that is, like, a feature, you know, like, uh, featured content, right? The war fronts or islands or whatever the kind of case may be. But um, but I always preferred it because it made Dizarre Lore feel like a real city, right? Like, there's something kind of there's something a little too like hub worldy about Boralis for me to kind of just like, it's so convenient to have everything there. And then you never really experience the city. I never have to like run through the neighborhoods or districts of the city to get to my like objectives essentially. Um, and I think that that has a real impact on the way that people play, right? There are people who want the convenience. They want to essentially just say, get all of the useful stuff collected in one place for me. And then there are people who say, like, no, I want this to feel like it is a real world and a real city. And in a real city, the profession district is a different place than the harbor where the troops are shipping out from. Yeah, I, I, I feel like this is, a, this is a particular problem with MMOs, right? Because, like... You you have like like quality of life balanced against kind of uh, the, the experience, and it's very easy to kind of like trim away the experiential things to give you better quality of life. Just because like you know, it's cool to have like a real city, but when you're playing for like four hundred hours, and like that four hundred hours becomes four hundred fifty hours because you're spending a bunch of time walking between different city blocks. It's like, well, I you know. I only have so many hours to play this game each week, and am I really going to spend it walking around? You know, just because you know, just to to kind of embrace that realism. That's that's a, I think a, a tough thing to balance from just kind of a design perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if there's a like. I think that this can work out in in the more open world games, like say Skyrim, or or even Outer Worlds, even though it's, as we've discussed, it's a little bit smaller, um, because you can kind of pack. Like, you, you can put, like, stuff in those in-between spaces, even if, like, some of it's, like, kind of blank. Like, uh, Fallout 4 or Skyrim, it's never like you're super far away from something interesting being there. And you don't have to worry about, like, it being overrun with, with people or, any, like, you know, with, with other players in a way that would cause uh, cause cause problems in, in that way. Um, yeah, and I also think that those games, by supporting fast travel in a way, uh, kind of skip... Some of this, some of this stuff. There isn't true fast travel in most MMOs, right? Like there is some kind of transport time that's sort of like built into everything, and over time that gets lessened in an MMO, right? You go from walking to a ground mount to a flying mount, right? Ooh, excuse me, or even you know in Battle for Azeroth you go from ground mount to a flying mount, sort of thing. 
um, as sort of, like, time goes on. But, like, in Skyrim, which, by the way, I would count among the very best examples of this, right? Skyrim consistently feels huge to me. And in my experience and in my head, even though I kind of, like, cognitively know it's not. And I think part of that is because, like, you do the trip, right? The first time you go from Whiterun or from whatever the spawning place is, like Hel- Helbjorn, I can't remember what it's called, um, to Whiterun. That's like a trip, and you stop at a town, and you do a couple of quests in the town, and then you go to Whiterun, and then you find out, oh, there's all these other sort of cities or whatever. And then you go to Solitude, or you go to, uh, you know, I don't fucking remember the other cities or whatever. But as soon as you have done the trip once, you then instantly do the trip every other time, basically, right? In most situations, you'll just be zipping around through kind of fast traveling, which means that it kind of never gets tedious in a way. Like, you never have to do the run daily in the way that I have to do the run daily around Dizarro lore, if that makes sense. Um, which I think, you know, it kind of is a little bit to the benefit of Skyrim. Not only that, but like, because you're fast traveling, like there are piece, there are places in between that you just kind of like don't see yet. And so it's easy to kind of imagine them as being bigger than you think. Right. Like, um, like there's that, there's like the, 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 the there's Mount, lots of mountains in Skyrim. Right. And when you're standing on one side of them, it's kind of easy to imagine that, like, there's, like, an infinity on the other side of them. And if you actually walk across them, it really isn't, right? Like, in fact, the mountains are kind of, like, the least feature-rich things in the game just because they're, like, big slopes of snow. Um, uh, but because you, you rarely ever actually have to walk over them, it kind of, like, you imagine them being bigger. And that's an interesting point that you bring up because, at least in my experience, a lot of the games, a lot of the more modern and most have instant travel as opposed to as opposed to flight paths like wow does right like you know I, th- that might be the case um final fantasy 14 and guild wars 2 are both instant travel uh so uh yeah i mean but you still have to find like the next like the points to it sure you know but, what but, I mean? but, but, yeah but, that, that is fair though yeah, they do have like but, but eighth, right i was gonna say like the, but that's what you're talking about right you have to do the run once and then you zip to it instead of instead of uh, walking to it Right, right, but in like fourteen, I have to go. I can only zip from eighth right in in Skyrim. I can fast travel from anywhere. Oh, I see what you're saying. That's the, uh, I mean, it's a very minor distinction. I, I take the point. You 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 are correct. Um, this is this is interesting because we talk like you know one of the more popular kind of things to do in these Skyrim games is to disable all fast travel, just walk through the game. It's like a way to freshen it up, mm-hmm. right? And I, wonder... I mean, that's actually true. Something that I that I did. I mean, I've played through Skyrim maybe like three or four times over the years. Um, And something that I ended up doing on my later playthroughs was I kind of set a small rule for myself that I could only fast travel to cities, right? There are nine of them across the map. And if I ever wanted to go do something, I would have to fast travel to like the closest city and then go, you know, like go the rest of the way on my own, if that makes sense. I also wonder how much of this is like, like, is implementation details aside, right? Like there's more opportunity in say Skyrim or Fallout to kind of generate things in places you've already been that are different. Whereas you can't have that kind of inconsistency for the most part in 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 an MMO because of kind of like it's almost like FOMO stuff. I wonder if you, I wonder if you could kind of do do kind of like a, a more random setup for an MMO and have it like not feel like unfair in some way right like 
you have to make it compelling enough that you'd want to like do the activity right like stop the bandits on the road but not so compelling that like people get mad that they can't find the one thing that you want to do um yeah i mean i think the the key distinction there might be like skyrim is a is an exhaustible resource in a way whereas mmos are repeatable and so, like, Skyrim wants to make a big, giant map full of stuff to do, but, like, you do it once. WoW wants to make a big, giant map full of stuff to do that you come back to and do every once in a while, right? You know, you come back and you kill this rare mob for a world quest. Or, you know, uh, you get something from the war campaign that brings you to this area again, and you kind of, like, move through it multiple times. Um, and, like, you know... There's a bit of that in Skyrim, obviously, uh, but for the most part, Skyrim always kind of feels like one and done. Like, there's not a ton of instances where I will go through a dungeon in Skyrim and then come back to that same dungeon later, right? Like, there's once it once it is marked cleared on my map, I basically never go back there, right? Um, and that's not and that's just like never the case for for. MMOs, right? Any MMO is built on the fact that you want to go repeat this content kind of over and over again. Yeah, no, that's 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 absolutely true. Um, I mean, the in between space you can still visit a bunch of times in in like the in the open world games, um, but you're right. The the kind of individual points are definitely cleared out and left behind. But I wonder, like, I guess it'd be kind of like. Like, you know, you could mold the story around it, right? Like, you know, Mage's Puzzle Dungeon or something. Um, but, like, if you could do kind of, like, the, the idea that you're clearing out stuff. Um, and that could also, like, you know, build... Like, this is like, kind of like Greater Rifts are all supposed to be kind of unique spaces in game world. Um, even though, like, you know, the, the actual Diablo world is, is relatively constrained. Yeah, I mean, Diablo is an interesting example because it sort of skirts this problem. Like, I yeah. just started a new, like, the new season just started, so I started a new season character. Um, and uh, and I've been playing through the... And you kind of get the option, right? You can go to adventure mode or whatever, or you can go to campaign mode where you play through, like, the story one end or the other. But the thing is, is that it, does, it never frames this like you are... You know what I mean? Like, you are experiencing the world as it yeah. is. You are teleported to a specific place and time, and then you play through that specific story, right? And you can do it over and over again if you want, but you're always sort of, like, repeating the same sort of, like, story. In World of Warcraft, there isn't that same sort of, like, sense, right? Like, it makes you want to think that the world is a living, breathing entity, even if you aren't there, you know what I mean? And, like, specific things will, like, update and change, and it'll be really weird and confusing, right? Like, if you walk into Orgrimmar right now, there is no... Right? Like, my my fully updated character, right? Baron walks into the, you know, the Hall of Honor or whatever it's called, and there is no Sylvanas. But if I haven't completed a certain questline, Sylvanas is there. If I haven't gotten to a certain expansion, Vol'jin is there. If I, you know... W- if, if I'm doing specific quests from Cataclysm, they're telling me to go talk to Garrosh Hellscream, who just happens to be, like, sitting off to the side in, like, this weird phase thing. And that and that none of that stuff ever makes sense in WoW. And it's, like, a real kind of, like, narrative deal-breaker um, in in trying to create, like, a, a single through-line the way Diablo does. But, you know, obviously, 
or Grimoire is a living, breathing city, and it is nice going there now and hearing, you know, people, Sylvanas loyalists saying, I got duped by the Banshee Queen, right? Like, that's a very current conversation that happens in the world, even though there is a Sylvanas model waiting to feed quests to level 110 players, right, who, you know, who are coming and starting the Battle for Azeroth story for the first time. Yeah, that's... That's... that's that's interesting. Like, that's definitely... I, I definitely get that. There's part of me that wants, like, you know, Blizzard to, like, be to, to you know, invest all the extra hours in, like, making an alt... You know, if you join now, you know, well, I guess you joined up at, after, you know, after Sylvanas pulled her shit, so you gotta do something different. And, and, you know, obviously that's a lot of extra man hours for, like, you know, this teeny bit of, of, of immersion, but... I mean, hey, that it is man hours that they're putting into the next expansion, right? Like the whole idea yeah. of uh, the the remodeled experience in Shadowlands is that they're just leaning into Chromie and the Bronze Dragonflight, and now you know you whatever you hit level ten or whatever, and then uh, and then they say, okay, you're gonna play through Mists, great, and then they set the world to Mists of Pandaria, and you play through Mists of Pandaria world, um, which makes a lot of sense. Like I think that that's a really clever kind of. Uh, tactic for them um and the best way that they can sort of resolve this desire to have both narrative continuity and the feature of a living world oh really so i i hadn't realized that are they like it's like classic going to be part of the core wow experience in shadowlands like can you no, 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 no. So okay. you're still you're still playing like shadow, you know, like you're still playing like retail modern WoW, right? But essentially, what happens is you play through the first ten levels. Um, they're adding a new starter zone that's called like Exiles Reach or whatever that has like its own sort of story, and it's built for like new, 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 new players, right? A brand new player to World of Warcraft plays through this sort of thing. Uh, but you can also do the traditional zones in like Elwyn Forest or whatever. And then when you hit level ten, you go to the city and you basically get a quest that's like, okay, what expansion do you want to play through? And they say, and you say, I want to play through Mists of Pandaria, and you just get a quest to go do Mists of Pandaria. You go through the whole storyline end to end, right, all the way through the Dread Wastes or whatever, um, and that's how you get to max level, which in Shadowlands is sixty because they're doing a, a level squish. Um, or I'm sorry, no, the max level is fifty. That's not how you get to max level. It's how you get to before current content, and then fifty to sixty is the Shadowlands. Oh, so you only play one? Uh, yeah, it's designed so that you only play one. Um, okay. They did say that you can swap around, so hypothetically that means that, you know, if you play through the Jade Forest and you have a really good time, you can drop that quest, go back to Chromie. Chromie says, hey, what's up? And you say, I want to play through Wrath now, and then you start playing through Wrath of the Lich King. Okay. So that's interesting because it, like, I know we're getting kind of off track here, but it it, it sounds like you could, like, you could drop in the option that's like, and I would like to play through pre-Cataclysm, uh, you know, Azeroth or whatever, as one of the options. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think they have the tech for that, uh, just right, because right, right. they have kind of told us they don't have the tech for that. Um, the The original Azeroth was never built for flying, uh, which is part of the reason they did the Cataclysm update in the first place. Um, but yeah, you know, hypothetically, I mean, who knows? Maybe they do fold in. That would be really nuts if they folded in kind of like the classic experience that way. Like, could you imagine leveling through till 60 in classic and then having the option to kind of like boost yourself into shadowlands that'd be really like kind of crazy neat but you said you but you're right they are off topic really the point the point is is that you know in diablo they sort of anchor everything around this story whereas in world of warcraft they sort of anchor everything around like the world itself as like a living breathing kind of organism um 
if I if I make a new troll today, I am getting all of the same pre or all of the same Cataclysm era troll quests in the Echo Isles, and then there's a dock, and at the dock is a boat that goes to Zandalar, right? Which only joins the Horde and is like a canon thing years and years sort of later. In WoW, you're just kind of expected to like not really worry about you like don't sweat these story details, right? When you get to max level and you do all the max level stuff, it all makes sense there. Everything else, don't worry about it, kind of thing. Uh, but in Diablo, right? Like they they uh, they link the whole through line to you are you're kind of like rewatching a movie almost at that point. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, I I get that, I and mean, that's kind of like. I think that's more concessions to gameplay than it is anything else, right? Like, yeah, because um, you're ne- like the game was net like the narrative of the game does not support the way the game that the way the game is played at end at, at like end game, right? Like, like the the story and the systems are almost totally divorced from each other, um, which is a a a way to do it, right? Like, but it, it's just it's. You know, it, it kind of recognizes that, like, the story of Diablo, while interesting, is one thing, but you're really here to kind of, like, click on the shinies uh, for the next three hours. And if you want, like, after you've done it once, you can just bypass it all and just kind of, like, do things in a vacuum and then, like, womp on things. Um, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, this is, is Similar thing, in, like Path of Exile, I think does a similar thing. I've never gotten to the end game of Path of Exile because that game is insane. Um, uh, but yeah, um, so so kind of notoriously, and I've never played it, but Daggerfall, the the, the second. Oh my god, was... I did play Daggerfall. I actually played a bunch of Daggerfall. I had no idea what I was doing, and I died just just fucking a lot. All yeah. the time, uh, but uh, yeah, I did play. I did play Daggerfall. The Daggerfall is notoriously, I think, the biggest, the biggest game ever in terms of like real world mapping. Um, but like most of its most of its kind of uh, procedurally generated and not very well, so a lot of it's very boring. Um, do you think there's a space for like, like so? So there's that, and then the other one that comes to mind is like Eve Online, right? Like. EVE Online gets away with it because, like, it is very, 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 very big. But most of it's space. And space, notoriously, in real life, has, like, nothing in it. So, like, you don't usually go out to, like, the weirder parts of space, right? Like, you're just kind of, like, around the hubs. And, like, there's, like, a kind of, like, a natural limit on how far things are out normally. Because you kind of, you, 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 uh, you <laughs> literally fast travel, right? Like, you're doing, like, hyperspeed, hi- hyperspace jumps to different yeah. hubs. Yeah, um, uh, I do want to point out, it is insane. I, I didn't actually know the number, but I just, like, looked it up really quickly. The actual size of the map in Daggerfall is 161,000 kilom- like square kilometers. Like, that's ridiculously huge. Uh <laughs> Yeah, and like for comparison, Skyrim's like much smaller, right? Like, yeah, the, the explorable part of Morrowind is twenty four square kilometers, which is and Morrowind is the sequel to Daggerfall, right? Like, you yeah. know, that is absolutely insane. Holy shit! But, but yeah, do you see a a, a way in which you could do a more realistically mapped game that wouldn't feel onerous and like outside of like weird? niches you could do like you know like i'm sure you could make a fairly successful you know euro truck simulator that's based on real distances just because the type of people who are going to play that game would like welcome that kind of realism um 
Maybe. You know, I do actually wonder about Euro Truck Simulator. Because obviously, like, the Truck Simulator games, like, you know, I mean, we memed about it. Um, but uh, the Truck Simulator games are a really popular subgenre of games, right? Like, they release, D- like, there's a Utah DLC pack that's all about driving through, like, Utah. Huge, like, you know, um, CGP Grey, who's a really, hu- really huge YouTube creator um you know he has like however many million i think he's like four million youtube subscribers or whatever he notoriously will play the truck simulator games as a like as like a come down after making his is you know big videos that he puts a ton of work into he'll do like a live stream where for 18 hours straight he'll just like binge euro truck simulator and i do sort of wonder like what is the realism of euro truck simulator if i got you i mean i'm sure there's like a a los angeles or whatever like could i drive to my house in euro truck simulator like what i I think that's american truck simulator buddy los angeles is in europe yeah i do not live in europe (laughs) that's that's true um uh, but like, yeah, could I drive to my house in American Truck Simulator? Right? Like, could I? Could I? What approximation could I get to my house in American Truck Simulator? I know the highways near my house, right? Like, do they have each individual exit? Do they group the exits up a little bit? I have no idea. I've never played any of these one of these games. I actually might, honestly, because now I'm just so interested in like I, the the mechanics here, to, just to see. Um, so, so I think they are squished a bit, but I think that you like that's the type of game where you could expand the realism and not have it be super super like problematic from like a gameplay perspective right like if you made if you made uh like gta you know real sized and you know it's like well i spent you know uh like said it in like a fictional new york right it's like well i spent two hours driving in traffic and uh, now I can't play, like, now I'm out of time to play my game. And then you get back on and, you know, it's you, you spend, like, real real life amounts of time, which is just kind of inconvenient at some level. Um, but I do think that there's, like, a thirst for something a little bit bigger than we have. What do you think the natural limits of that are? Okay, yeah, wow, this is really interesting because now I'm looking it up. Uh, the The... So the scale of American and Euro Truck Simulator are two different scales, right? Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. This is old. So, the, so they are both now on the same scale. I'm really reading an article. The The old scale was a ratio of 1 to 35, right? Every one mile is 35 miles in, you know, Euro Truck Simulator, Amer- or the old American Truck Simulator. And then it has now moved to 1 to 20. So every 20 miles is one mile in the new American Truck Simulator. Um, this seems this seems to suggest outside of cities. Cities themselves are better represented, according to this article on PCGamer.com. So I do sort of think there is a... There is a mar- it, it also sort of... I'm looking at map mods. Apparently there are a lot of map mods... For the American Truck Simulator games, I wonder if these make for more accurate... Oh my god, this is an accurate coast-to-coast mod of the... How is this possible? This can't... This isn't real. It's what it says, though. Um, so, yeah, I guess there is an there is something for this uh, in, in at least this specific subgenre of... Transport simulator games? Is that what we're I, in? I, that Flight like... simulator. We, we Look up flight simulator. Um, oh, that's a good question. Because, yeah, like, that game is, like, sold is. on the fact that it's, like, you're basically, like, every time Microsoft shows off flight simulator, it's, like, the most beautiful, beautiful game. 
that like I have like zero interest in ever actually playing. Like I don't want to pilot a fucking Boeing, but like the game sure looks fucking phenomenal. Um, uh, oh my god, uh, I'm well, reading an article from September of this year apparently that says that the new version of Flight Simulator uses essentially the Google Maps version oh, of Bing. Wow to create the world, the game space around you, which is honestly so smart. How clever is, is that? It's incredibly smart. But also at the same time, like, holy shit, I can't believe this. Well, that's because, like, flight simulator games are about, like, 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 truck, like, like I feel like in the tiering of the simulators, right, like how close something yeah. is supposed to be to, like, the actual thing, right? Like, flight simulator, I think, is supposed to be kind of one-to-one because it's not for, like, normal gamers right it's not even for like people who like like flight combat or whatever it's for people who like want to fly boeings but didn't bother to get their pilot's license right like um or like want to fly, fly cessnas but like can't every day like you know it's expensive so like you know even if they are flying it for real they'll fly it they'll fly it in the virtual space because it's much cheaper or whatever um uh yeah yeah this is absolutely insane i can't believe this is real they 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 basically are doing it right. They are mapping yeah. the actual real world because of you know the Bing Maps database or whatever that they've obviously been kind of like creating in some sister you know project. Um, but that's really honestly very stunning um, to to sort of see for the first time. Because the thing is, is like I think people would. To, to, to answer your question, right, I think in most instances, most gamers wouldn't be interested in that much realism, right? Because, like, the truth is, you know, look, if we were to make GTA Los Angeles with a one-to-one scale map of Los Angeles or whatever, there's just not that much interesting stuff happening in a lot of Los Angeles, right? It's just a lot of residential streets or, like, three-tier mid-level apartment sizes you know, buildings or whatever, right? Like how seven elevens that are just strewn all across the city and are more about being in a, you know, like a walkable distance from people in their apartments who want to go eat, you know, like a fucking churro at 2 AM than about like putting a, a kind of like a realistic node of interest on a map for a player to engage with. Right. The world is not designed for optimal use in a game setting, right? Even in a game setting that is kind of as true to life as GTA sort of purports or, like, wants to be. Obviously, GTA wants to give you a bunch of guns and see how many, you know, U.S. National Guard whatever you can kill by driving yourself up to four stars. But, like, you get, you know, you you get my point. Um, And so I think that's the that's the core thing. I don't think realism is, is actually sort of a good idea or a workable idea. And it's much better to kind of create a realistic open world experience that is kind of like tangible. And in that way that Dragon Age 2 has sort of suggests at something bigger and better and grander than what you're actually getting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of follow up on that, right? Like, um, the way that, like, say, D&D can do this is you can be, like, you know, your our party travels from, like, you know, let's say we're, we're setting, a, like, a, a tabletop game in, like, the real world. It's like, we're traveling from D.C. to Pittsburgh, right? And, like, 
you can kind of like, you know, imply the time that that takes, right? Like it took us two days to, you know, it took us like, uh, how long would that take on foot? Let's say like a week on foot. I don't know if that's accurate, but you know, let's, let's go with that. But you can like say like, and stuff happens along the way and just kind of like skip over the pieces in between is kind of like time when you're walking and maybe talking, right? Um, like I find that like some of the solutions in the video game world that kind of do that are just kind of like loading screens, which I don't think is quite exactly what you want there. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think there's a good way to to kind of capture that spirit? Is it is it just kind of like you know you like? So interestingly enough, I think there is a game that does capture the spirit. Um, so I played, uh, if you remember, Pillars of Eternity two, Dreadfire, Deadfire. Whatever, it's the pirate one, right? But something that they'll do that I thought was really great is they will kind of get you to these... um, So, like, so for instance, when you enter a city, you can kind of, like, go to the docks, right? But then when you move to another neighborhood, it then zooms you out to a sort of overland map or, like, illustration of the whole city. And then when you click on another section of the city, it'll then say, okay, it takes your party three and a half hours to walk there, right? But you also have the, not ability, but the uh, chance to kind of, like, proc events, right? Like, a bunch of thugs corner you in an alleyway. And the way that is resolved is by kind of, like, showing you almost sort of, like, animatics in a way, right? Like, it'll show you the picture of the mugger, and then a text box will come up that's like, you, you're you being... You're you're being mugged. What do you do when you have a couple of options, sort of thing? And like, if you choose fight the guys, it'll it'll kind of transport you to just like a generic city neighborhood map where you can fight. Um, But uh, but I think that that's probably the closest that that you can get because it both uh, it it both contains the majesty of the real you know grand city that you're walking through. At the same time, as it condenses the world space into something that is workable and clean from a video game perspective. That makes sense. I think that, like, I feel like you you also want to, like, like, this is something I'm I'm thinking of the top of my head is, like, a a way to kind of make this a little bit less kind of, like, like to build this is, like, when you're looking for, like, when you go to a store... At least the first time, you don't always necessarily go to the same store, right? Like, always going to, like, Zoltan in his, like, you know, general store is a little bit weird in, like, a big city where you assume there's, like, at least a couple of them. Like, if you could, like, you know, randomly be like, well, I'm going to the normal store, not, like, the specialty store. You just randomly generate, like, one of a handful and be like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to the, I'm going to the, you know, the, to use the real world equivalents, right? Like, I'm going to the. The, the the Safeway versus going to like the the the, the Wegmans or whatever um, are these national enough grocery brands that people understand what I'm talking about? But you know that's that's the or versus like the corner bodega, right? Like which could be like one of any ten thousand of them, and like you know maybe you want to give some way to choose the ones you've been to if you want to like talk about you know like this is all like very perspective stuff, but like I, I feel like you could do something like that and it wouldn't be super much effort and it would make the the cities feel a little bit more real rather than kind of artificial. Um, but you know, that's, I wonder, I wonder how much you, you get from that, right? Like, like these all feel like kind of like touches that would make things more realistic that you'd expect it of like an indie project, but like indie projects aren't at the scale of, uh, of, of a game that would need those kind of touches to, in order, in order to really affect change. Um, I don't know. It's interesting at least. 
Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, so there there is something to be also se- sort of said for, like, good versions and bad versions of the, like, the hub-based world's kind of, like, interaction. Um, like, something I've criticized certain Bioware games for um, is that the open world, like, for instance, in Dragon Age and Mass Effect Andromeda, isn't quite as good or as well set up as the open world in some of their other, other titles, even though they kind of, like, do the same, you know, they, like, they, they do the same thing where you have, like, Sky, oh, fuck, what's it called? Skyreach? I think it's called Skyreach, like the, the, which is your main castle where you base the Inquisition out of, right? And then you transport yourself to small areas of the other places that exist, but they're kind of like big enough to be open world chunks, but small enough that like you see their, you know, like you see the, the, edges. the yeah, like the, you just can't go past it at a certain point, right? And so like, so there's, um, you know, like there's that generic generic English countryside place outside of Red Ridge or whatever. Um, and then there's like the desert or whatever. And so in a certain sense, this is kind of like the uncanny valley in my head, right? Something that works about, uh, so, say for instance, uh, like Mass Effect 2 or 3, which both do this. Um, where most of your missions take place kind of in these instanced almost zones away from, you know, like away from the kind of the hub world, is that they feel like so directed that you get that sense of bigger stuff, but you also understand, like, look, I'm on a story. I'm going to keep moving through. It's really great that, you know, I'm here with fighting the, you know, with the Krogans on the Krogan homeworld and stuff, and I know that it's bigger than all of this. Um, but the little instance maps kind of, like, get it done. The weird thing about Dragon Age Inquisition and Mass Effect Andromeda is that it simultaneously says, ooh, here's a nice big chunk of open-world stuff for you to dig into, and that open-world chunk is sort of limited, right? You're only going to get the chunk, and then there's these invisible walls or whatever that surround, um, that sort of surround things. And I like both of these games. I do want to be clear, but... They run into that. They run into that weird uncanny valley problem of like not being seamless and not like seamless open world and not being kind of like a directed sort of narrative experience. It's almost like Dragon Age. Inqu- it's it's like Skyrim wants to put you into a giant like a Chuck E. Cheese or something, right? Where you have access to everything, and if you want, you can kind of, like, duck in and do the rides or play the arcade games or kind of, like, whatever. But, like, you have the whole thing open to you at once. Whereas, like, in a weird way, Mass Effect Andromeda and uh, uh, Dragon Age Inquisition want to constantly pluck you from one McDonald's play place to another, Right, where the the experience is just small enough that you're just like, ah, oh, this is like a little lame. You know what I mean? Compared to the big, giant, dedicated experience of Chuck E. Cheese. Does that does that analogy make sense? Does that does that track? A bit. I wonder how much of that is like, is the fact that like, the idea of kind of an open world kind of experience is kind of at odds with a sectioned off map, right? Like, it's it's hard to feel like you're organically stumbling across something when you know that there's like an edge over there right like it doesn't like it feels i guess more planted almost um and that's interesting because like i don't think the topic of last week's episode the outer worlds has this problem and that's maybe because i don't think it has too many like like 
openly explorable places. Like a lot of the stuff is, is very directed areas that you go to, right? Like, uh, uh, there's like a couple of places that you just kind of wander into or whatever. Um, but most of it's, you know, a, a plot point area, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know, but I, I definitely, I definitely take your point. I definitely take your point, right? Like, like have, like if, if it's hard to feel like, the little girl you find out in like the middle of the woods that needs to be escorted home is really kind of random. If you can see like the edge of the world over her shoulder type of deal. Yeah. Um, whereas like in Skyrim, even though like, you know, there's effectively nothing over her shoulder until you hit like the next city, which you could fast travel to the fact that it's actually there makes it feel a lot more, a lot more real, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. honestly, I almost sort of think, you know, so much of it is done. It's, 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 the, the details right where it is the little interactions in the town there's something about um playing skyrim and playing kind of knockoff versions of it um like a good example what's a good example of another well fallout 4 is actually a pretty good example of this where it's like there's just something about the magic of the way skyrim itself was designed that sells me more on the sort of verisimilitudinousness the verisimilitude of its setting than the commonwealth did in fallout 4 right like i had i mean i had a lot of con you know you and I had a lot of conversations about Fallout 4 when it released. Yeah. It's well-documented, you know, my feelings. It's like the first episodes of the podcast. Yeah, it's like the first episodes of the podcast, and I, like, really fucking hated it. Um, it still leaves a really bad taste in my mouth, even as I, like, bring up, you know, as I bring up this thing to see that I played 155 hours of Fallout 4. So don't don't let anybody tell you I didn't give this its, it's due. Um, yeah, anyway. I mean, we, we both, like, that, that was a thing that developed over time, right? Like, we, yeah, we yeah. both were positive on it initially. Uh, but like, but so, and you know, and specifically the way this came out is sort of in like those procedurally generated shitty, like the shit quests that Preston Garvey has you on or whatever right. that like just grind your gears that like kind of shattered the world building in a way, or just like warped the world building in a way to make me go like, man, you know, oh, man, like it's just not as good as the, the kind of carefully manicured world that Skyrim presented itself, right? Like, walking into Markarth and walking into Solitude are different experiences, but they're both, like, majestic and big experiences that, like, sell you on the world, right? They build a little credibility with you, in a way. And, and you know, you start in Helmgart, and you go to the the little town, and then you go to Whiterun, and then you fight your dragon, and each one of these, right, like, just slowly, slowly continues building the credibility, and the credibility of the world, and the credibility of the world, and you're getting other, you know, like, mechanics in there, too. For instance, I think that this is another reason why uh, some of the Bioware games kind of fall a little bit short, because, like, in Skyrim, it encourages you to sleep, right? It encourages you to buy a room at the inn for 10 gold, or whatever, and sleep for eight hours, and then go on and go adventuring because you get an experience bonus or whatever. And you want to, you know, and you can just keep playing if you want, right? But like keeping a day night cycle a little bit will get you uh, a little bit of an extra reward. And, th and those kinds of small simulation, sort of like lifestyle simulator aspects to the game that fall away with some of the other, you know, uh, some of the other kind of similar titles. Uh, Bioware isn't the only person that is, or like aren't the only people that are uh, sort of 
making this mistake, if you want to call it a mistake, a lot of the open worlds from Assassin's Creed to GTA V will also do the same sort of thing. But all that stuff kind of builds together and you get immersed in it. Um, and yeah, I don't know. There's just something that there's just something about that that gets lost if uh, if it's not well done. Yep. So this is going to be a little bit of a weird tangent to go on with so little time left. But like, I wonder how much of this is kind of like specific environment and how well they map, right? Like, I'm thinking about like, you know, like the the Skyrim, which is vaguely Nordic, right? There's a lot of flat open plains, and I think those like that shrinks well. Um, whereas something like something that, that that always kind of pops up in my mind is that like forests never feel foresty enough to me in these kinds of games, and I think part of that's like you have to scale the trees so that the trees approximately the like you can't shrink down an individual tree, but because of that, like a forest has to be like a, like you know a relatively small number of trees, like tens, maybe hundreds if you're lucky. Whereas like real like real forests are like endless seas of trees that you like can't see see through um and so like interesting like i wonder like how much like like forests don't scale down well planes do scale down well because like it's not like you feel like it's not like grass is ever countable or whatever or like you know like a desert right like as long as it's like large enough it doesn't feel wrong whereas like you know like i could probably count the number of trees no one forest right like yeah, and there's something about the, the, you know, most, if you've ever been in, like, a real, you know, like, forest or whatever, which I'm sure most people have, right? Like, you've gone walking in the woods sort of thing. There's so many small trees. That's the big thing that, that that's missing, especially in, like, WoW or whatever, right? Like, yeah, you could count the trees in Elwyn Forest, but all of those trees are, like, fucking gigantic, right? It's like you're walking in, like, the sequoias or whatever, uh, like the Redwood Forest of Northern California, and it's like... That does sort of create, you know, like you get the sense that you're kind of in in a in a forest because there are trees all over the place. But there's, but like you're never maneuvering around the little individual ones, if that makes sense. And the, that is the dominant experience of walking through a forest. It's like walking through the underbrush where you're kind of surrounded by all of these tiny little saplings that are, you know, like that have the thickness of a human human wrist. That never translates, uh, kind of no matter what game. Uh, I feel like you're playing. Yeah. There's also this kind of, like, if you're, like, sufficiently deep into a forest, you can't, like, see out of it, right? Like, and, like, yeah. you just don't have that, like, amount of density. Um, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just, like, kind of a, a, a weird thing to kind of, like, I mean, there's also, like, vegetation variation, but I think, like, I think that's kind of dealable with, but, like, man, uh because I was thinking that, like, this is just to bring it back to Death Stranding, right? Like, Death Stranding, at least the areas I've been in, there's, like, a couple of areas with trees, but most of it's, like, these vast open plains, which isn't very much like the, you know, the area of the the, the U.S. that I've that, uh, that I've traversed in it so far, right? Like, it's, like, in the, like, mid-Atlantic to northeast, there's a ton of freaking trees. Um, and, you know, the game, I think to its credit, kind of gets around that by just having, like, grassy plains with like hills in it instead of instead of a lot of trees um but yeah maybe, maybe that's a good place to to end it on on musings about how how trees don't scale well yeah um, yeah well uh how was your week uh my week was great 
I do want to I do want to say last night's episode of Watchmen was amazing. Obviously, no spoilers, um, and that we are planning on covering the the HBO Watchmen TV series uh, on HBO. I'm sorry, uh, on this podcast, not on HBO. Man, I wish our podcast was on HBO Mango. Um, uh, over the next couple of weeks, because it ends, I think there's only nine episodes in the first season. Um, and so the day after the season finale, we should have a podcast episode up where we talk about it. Um, I know that some of you, the, the, the many teens of you out there listening probably are wondering... Uh, what we think of the show, don't worry, it's coming, but we're not going to talk about it in these, uh, in these end segments. Um, I've been playing a lot of, uh, a lot of the same games I was playing last week. I've been doing a lot of StarCraft 2 multiplayer. I've been doing some Diablo, uh, Reapers of Souls, but the thing I wanted to actually talk about was a television show that I hardcore binged last night. Mega, have you ever heard of the show American Vandal? Uh, uh, yes, I've actually watched the first season of that show. Oh my god, can we please talk about it? It is so good and so much smarter than it has any right to be. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, the, the, uh, so for those of you at home that don't know, uh, uh, like I said, I've only seen the first season, but it covers, um, an incident at a high school where, um, where somebody uh, tags a bunch of teachers' cars, um, and uh, and the the school the, the school kind of misfit it, it gets blamed on the school misfit, um, and uh, our like the the point of view character is covering this incident in kind of like a, a journalistic way and trying to like get to this get to the truth of it right like in like a kind of like documentary style which is is kind of brilliant like it's like documentary now but like like self-serious about it if that makes sense yeah like i mean the thing it's really riffing on it, i mean it's funny because it's also a netflix show is the netflix show making a murderer uh the hbo series the jinx and the podcast serial which are all these like true crime right like we're we're journalists and we're gonna delve into these true crime cases and we're gonna tell you all about the case or whatever american vandal is like i don't really know if i would call it a parody or a satire because it is sort of both it is at once like sharply sharply condemning this genre of you know like fiction not even fiction non-fiction right uh but also in the same in the same you know in the same way right like the kids do successfully exonerate the wrongly accused man right but just like oh my god it was so it was so good and I was so hooked, right? Like, I started watching last night at, like, 11 or whatever. Um, and I, I was like, I'll play a little Diablo. I'll watch a little of, you know, the, this show, whatever. It just, like, popped up on my Netflix. It's like, let's get into it kind of thing. Um, and I just sat there and I binged it till like, 3 a.m. Because I was just so hooked. Which I think, honestly, kind of, like, speaks to the to the power of some of these sort of, like, true crime shows. Yeah. No, I, I, absolutely. And in the way that they, it can kind of also, like shape narratives right like the um like i know that like uh some of the some of the more famous versions of these shows um the facts are not as as uh as like the story isn't as as clear as the documentary or the series would make it seem right like i know in particular making of a murderer is a lot muddier than the show wants you to believe right and that part of that's like storyline stuff right like um but uh 
uh, and I think I think that's kind of like I think the way that this show addresses it is uh, the kids like you know not not to go too far into spoilers territory, but like you find out like that the kid's not a great dude right like the the the, the kid that they eventually exonerate yeah Dylan um, yeah 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 um, and at the end like you know it's and like you know it, it goes into kind of like the the bits about like exposing things that aren't like necessarily totally related to what's happening. The, but like the like the 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 kids who 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 are like behind the camera is just like perfectly done, right? Like all the seriousness and gravitas of a person who thinks they're doing like world changing work in high school, and it's about like somebody who spray painted a car, right? Like, um, like the like in terms of like the you know how important I thought I was in high school versus how important it, like it is like it captures that kind of very perfectly. Um, one of the big takeaways for me actually was like as kind of like you know, a kid of this transitional generation, like, right before, like, the, like, right at, like, you know, when we were, we were in high school when Facebook really started to take off, like, just kind of, like, the, the idea that, like, everybody has cell phones and everybody's, like, ev- all the stuff is being shared among everybody, uh, and, you know, like, Instagram and Facebook and all the stuff being disseminated across, uh, across all your peers just seems, like, kind of terrifying to think if that was, like, my life when I was when I was a kid, right? Like Yeah, oh, my God. Okay, so the episode where they uh, – so a, a, a couple of things happen at a party, right? And what they realize that they can do is by piecing together, like, the various Vines and Instagram, you know, videos that people took at the party, they can actually sort of, like, recreate a conversation in aggregate because they can, like – you know, like, move it from point A to point B. They also track a piece of the evidence this way. And it's and on one end of the spectrum, it was very, like, cool, right? Like, this is part of what makes these shows compelling, right? Like, seeing this kind of investigation in action, right? Like, what are the clever ways that you can figure something out, that you can find the truth or whatever, or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, but it also made me, like, intensely, intensely, like, aware of the bullet I dodged by, like, being effectively unrecorded throughout much of my high school, you know. Like, imagine if there were recordings of me in high school that someone could bring up to me, buddy, the 30-year-old podcast guy right now. Like, oh my god, that's a terrifying thought. Um, Because, you know, yeah, like, I was at parties where people got super wasted and the cops show up and I, you know, bolted for my life or whatever. And, you know, like, all of these other kinds of things. And maybe we would just kind of all say, oh, like, let's the culture kids will be kids, kind of, like, move on or whatever. But still, I don't know, there's just, like, something very, like, frightening about this idea that, like, you are always a bit player, a background player in someone else's, like, video. Do you know what I mean? I mean, even, like, the stuff, so, we did have, right, like, some point in the last year, I downloaded my Facebook archive, read through some of my old statuses, and was, like, at some level, like, horrified, and some level, like, well, I was a lot moodier as a teenager than I remember being, and then I deleted all of it, that way I didn't have to, you know, like, like, off of Facebook, that way no one could ever find it again, um, you know, um, but, like, like, uh, like, I feel like the, the kind of like the the people a couple of years under us were the, like where they were all uh, recorded is is going to be like they get the worst of it because like they'll have to deal with like the people who didn't like exposing them. Oh but, yeah, they're gonna have to deal with uh, the, yeah. Like imagine the first like not not millennial. I guess it's less than but like you know like a political candidate like, or yeah. something from that generation who then gets like 
a, a leak to the tabloids about like their Instagram, you know, whatever from high school, right? Um, yeah. Like it's just I don't know. It's just a, a crazy thought to think of. And they're you know that generation I feel bad for because they're going to have to deal with it, right? The next generation might be able to get away with like the you know well this is like you know it's normalized now, right? Like everybody was an idiot in in high school and we can kind of like look past it now, but like. You know this kind of middle ground group of people, um, you know, is is, is just gonna it's gonna have to deal with like that normalization. It's gonna be it's gonna be bad for a while. Um, but yeah, no, I'm I I am keenly aware of of kind of like even the footprint I left, which wasn't like super like video or anything, just like kind of like Twitter statuses or like uh, you know photos of stuff, and, and and nothing nothing I had was so terrible that like I think it'd be like. But it's just like stuff that, like, you know, stuff that I like. You know, if God forbid I ever have a kid, right? Like, it's like, oh, dad was like a was like a moody teen too. It's like, yeah, maybe that's okay for them to know at some point. But like, I don't want them to be like digging and see like me being sad about like stuff that happened in high school. It's just it's 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 it's, it's, it's the form of being of, of a journal, but also one that's like out for anybody to see. It's kind of like. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's like a live journal, or I think it was called Zanga, uh, is what I used out there. That is like a collection of my moody thoughts, because uh, I thought it was. This is a true story. I, it was a website where you could go and you could like journal or whatever, and I thought it was private, but it was actually public. And my dad had been reading my Zanga for a long time, and I had no idea, and I stopped using it because he was reading it. So I, I, you know, for, I'm like the first victim of this because I thought it was private, but it wasn't. It was all, it was all public. <laughs> this is before like MySpace or whatever. The reason I knew, by the way, is because I, uh, I wanted to do really well on a test. I had calculated out like I needed to get an 88 on this test in order to get an A minus on the course, and I got like an 87 or something. And I wrote this huge long thing about how disappointed or whatever I was feeling, and about how afraid I was that I was going to get like punished for like fucking up or whatever. And, uh, and I eventually, like, asked my dad, like, two weeks later, I was like, like, how come you never punished me for, like, you know, fucking up this test? And he was like, because I read your Zanga article. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, Dad, no, no. Like, uh... <laughs> oh, oh God. God. It's funny. The other fu- thing that I find very funny as, again, a 30-year-old podcaster is looking back on this stuff and sort of, like, realize People always say this in the moment, right? Like, people always tell you, like, high school is temporary, right? Like, it really doesn't fucking matter what happens in, in high school. It goes away. You're, you'll be fine. Live your life. Get on with it kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and in the moment, that feels like the worst. It's like telling someone who's really pissed to, like, calm down. Do you know what I mean? It's like, no, fuck you. This is important. This is my life, dad, or whatever. You know what I mean? But now that I'm watching it, I'm like, wow, this is really some unimportant bullshit. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, you know, that's exactly what American Vandal captures so well. Yeah. Right? Like, there's, there's a lot of aspects of that, right? Like, it, it was a very interesting – it's a very interesting kind of way to, like, travel back to those years because, like, I could remember feeling that way. And, like, the fact that it's, like, a comedy series, right, like, is, you know, like, you know, in, in just kind of highlights how absurd it all is. But yeah. – yeah, I mean, yeah. the comedy of it was so good. Like, the whole thing with, like, Alex Trimboli and, like, the hey with two Ys means she wants to fuck or whatever. Like, the, all of those bits. Just, like, these tiny little... Wow, man, look at these sirens. Someone's in trouble, Mango. These tiny little bits that they will just go on and on for. And they, I like, 
they're just super funny. I mean, part of it is just like the dicks, like <laughs> the part where, you, you know, they go to the teacher and in all seriousness say to the teacher, but what about the balls hair? And it's like, it's doubly funny, right? Because the documentary is so self-serious and earnest that it gets you to buy into its own sort of mystique, right? Like the, oh, it couldn't have been Dylan because Dylan always draws ball hair when he draws his dicks, right? But then when you're confronted with the reality of them walking up to a teacher and trying to ask the teacher incredibly seriously about ball hair and how it's like not, you know, like that, that evidence doesn't make sense. You just kind of get like slapped in the face. It's like, oh my God, what, a, what, what the fuck are these kids doing? Do you know what I mean? Which is part of why I like, I have a hard time saying, I have, I have a hard time saying whether or not it's parody or whether or not it's satire. Um, because like I like I do think at the end of the day, its point is pretty destructive um, of this this like subgenre of like true crime and the ethics therein. Uh, I have definitely heard a, a certain number of stories, right? Like you know, um, one of the one of the interesting things about the true crime cases that do get discussed, like the Jinx or like Making a Murderer or like Serial, is that these are real people, right? Like they're not characters who you know like these these at the end of the day these are all actors who just take it off um but like you know adnan syed or whatever his name is um the serial guy like that is a real person who is in prison for killing a real person and to some people he is a monster who you know committed a brutal act of domestic violence and then murdered his ex-girlfriend over it right and to some people he is you know, like he is an innocent man who's been in jail for 20 years. And there's a lot more like real stakes to that than there are stakes to, uh, American Vandal. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I haven't watched the other ones. I actually did try watching making a murderer, but I found making a murderer to be like a little bit too technical to be fun. Um, like it really goes in deep on some of these aspects of like, Oh, the key of the thing was, was here, but it was over there. And it takes like 15 fucking minutes. It's like, okay, I get it. You guys like the keys are in the wrong spot. Um, and, uh, and maybe that's just because like truth is not as fun as fiction. Um, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, speaking of murder mysteries, I saw uh, the an early screening of *Knives Out* um, by uh, uh, written and directed by one Ryan Johnson. Oh boy! Uh, yeah, I thought um, he was ruined *Star Wars*. The the man <laughs> ruined *Star I mean, Wars* personified. Well, you know what? *Knives Out* isn't *Star Wars*. So even if I did believe that wholeheartedly, it doesn't have any bearing <laughs> on this movie. <laughs> nice. Um, uh, I mean, I like you know. As we've been over many times, I am mixed on the Last Jedi, um, and I think it definitely does some things wrong. And I think its weakest points are kind of like respect for the, uh, for kind of like the the base, uh, for for like the kind of like existing mythology. Um, but that doesn't matter at all here because this is a movie about uh, a, a dude who gets murdered, um, and th- so I don't want to spoil anything because uh, technically the release date is this Thursday. Um, so I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but I thought it was very good. I thought Daniel Craig was pretty great, but, um, it's not actually really a whodunit, right? Like you find out pretty early on who actually did it. And it's, uh, and it's more of a thriller 
than it is uh, than it is like a whodunit. Although there are some mysterious aspects and there's like a couple more twists and turns, um, but uh, the characters are great um, and like the uh, and and just kind of like the whole thing is is a lot of fun to watch. It's it's very funny. Um, and uh, I, I'd highly recommend it to everybody. I don't want to say too much else because I think this is kind of the movie that kind of like rides on its twists and turns. So I don't want to go too far into it. But um, if you were really expect, if you were like going to this exclusively to like figure out the mystery, there's actually not a ton of that in this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it's a, uh, uh, but it, but it, but it's a it's a very well done movie. Um, the other movie I saw this week was uh, uh, "It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood." The Tom Hanks plays Mr. Rogers movie, which is interesting because it's not as much about Mr. Rogers as you'd expect because it's like a narrative movie. And Mr. Rogers is kind of like this untouchable saint and seems to be that way from everything we we know about the actual man. It's more about like he has has like the Superman problem, right? Like you can't give him a character arc because he can't have flaws to overcome. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, and part of this is because, like, he, he, as far as we know, he didn't really, so, like, you know, he was as good as he appeared to be. Um, but it's about the guy, I think it's for Esquire, who interviewed him. And that guy is going through some problems in his life, and Fred kind of helps him through it, um, like, while he's, like, interviewing him. Um, it was, I thought Tom Hanks did a very good job of capturing Fred's spirit. Um, Mr. Rogers spirit. I am, I, you know, Mr. Rogers is a big part of my childhood. So, um, these kind of like, uh, the, the, uh, documentary, which I believe is called, won't you be my neighbor that came out last year. I really loved. Um, yeah. I yeah that we w- talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this movie is all right. It's got some weird moments to it. There's like a dream sequence in the middle where the reporter thinks he's like on the stage of the show. Um, there's, oh my God, there's a moment in this, in this movie where, Tom Hanks says to they're in Tom Hanks is with the reporter and they're in a or not Tom Hanks, you know, Tom Hanks playing Mr. Rogers in the restaurant with the reporter. And he says to him, uh, uh, this is exercise I'd like to do, like you do it to me. Let's be quiet for a minute and just think about all the people who love you and help got you here. Right? I'm like, okay, this is kind of neat. Everybody in the restaurant puts down everything, right? The movie goes completely silent for the full minute, and like ten seconds into it. Tom Hanks stares directly into the camera out at the audience. <laughs> oh my god! Holy shit! No way! Wow! Yeah. That's bold. Yeah, and it was it was like, like it was a cool moment, but like, like as like the he like turns towards the camera. I'm like, wait, is this really happening? Right? Like, you know, it's got some cool like some cool cinematography, like all the, um, all the, uh, the kind of transition shots are like miniatures on like, if you ever see Mr. Rogers neighborhood, mm-hmm. when they're like transferring between areas, they kind of like zoom out on this toy city and zoom back in on it. And they have like these toy cars and these toy planes on like a version of Pittsburgh and New York, which is where the, the, the characters move between. Cause, um, Mr. Rogers is from Pittsburgh. Um, and uh, I thought that was really I, well done. You know done. what's funny? I mean, I'm sure I did know this at some point because, like, I'm all, my family's also from Pittsburgh. And I'm, <laughs> I, I apologize to all of the native Pittsburgh people out there because I'm about to just, like, roast the shit out of you. Pittsburgh people love to brag about the cool people from Pittsburgh, right? Like Andy Warhol or whatever, right? Um, 
and uh, and you just hear you just hear it constantly, like, oh, gee, he's from Pittsburgh, right? Um, and I kind of can't believe that I didn't know, or at least at the very least, forgot that Mister Rogers was from Pittsburgh. <laughs> Because, like, it is the most insufferable thing, because Pittsburgh people do this all the fucking time. Uh, but, yeah, wow, he's from Pittsburgh. Wow, way to go. Yeah. Uh, the, the trolley is apparently, like, a Oh, thing my that... God, it's from the incline. Oh, that makes so much sense. I get it now. Yeah. Yeah, that's a famous Pittsburgh thing. Yeah. No, and if if you are if you are all interested, like, I don't. I think this movie was good and worth a watch. But if you have to choose between this and uh, the documentary, I recommend the documentary, uh, just because I think it captures a little bit more about him and like what the world was about, kind of, and uh, and like what 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 his kind of vision for the world is. Um, uh, also, there's this weird thing that like every single thing about Mister Rogers seems to want to do, which is reference the fact that everybody thinks he was a Navy SEAL with like sleeve tattoos and that that's entirely not true he was like a he was like a pastor and a television host and that's it but like it comes up in the documentary which makes sense but it comes up in this movie too like there's like a like the the main character's sister is like newly married to like this like every single jersey stereotype like rolled into one uh uh yeah he's like he's like i heard you was a seal mr rogers and it's like, no, I'm afraid that's not true. You know, it's, it's but like the the fact that it always comes up is always kind of uh, amusing to me because like even in this fictionalized thing, someone has to bring it up and he has to say that's not true. Um, uh, but yeah, other than that, I just played a ton of Destiny too because uh, you know those games as a service. The season's coming to an end in two weeks, and uh, and I want to get those those chivos that are going to go out of season in two weeks, right? Ooh, that actually oh. that's that raises an interesting point. So here's an interesting thing. This is this is the in the grand tradition of buddy chronicling controversies in the World of Warcraft community, the newest thing that everybody's mad about is the Brutosaur mount. Okay, so we've talked about the Brutosaur mount a bunch of times. It is five million gold, incredibly expensive. Um, and it has an auction house on that, right? Like it is a big dinosaur and one of the people is a repair person and the other person is an auction house, right? So you have a mobile auction house wherever you want to go. In the PTR, they just changed the achievement that you get for getting the Brutosaur to a feat of strength. Feet of strengths are special achievements that you only get like at one time and then they go away, right? Like the most common feat of strength is to like is an anniversary thing if you like log in on the anniversary you get that feat of strength but like it's not an achievement that anybody you can't ever log in on the sixth anniversary again right um and so and so people asked and they were like hey whoa does putting the brutosaur achievement in the feat of strength suggest that the brutosaur is going away and blizzard said yes the brutosaur when Shadowlands releases is not going to be for sale anymore. It's going to the black market auction house. The black market auction house is the place where wow essentially skirts the like earn it in game thing. There's a bunch of stuff that you just can't get anymore because like the content is outdated or outmoded or for whatever other reason. Um, And so you can buy it off of the black market auction house if you want it. Right. Um, The black market auction house uh and so and so putting the Brutosaur on the black market auction house obviously reduces its you know uh availability quite a bit and everyone is fucking 
furious about it. Now, in the great-grand tradition of me being a great-grand contrarian about these controversies, I actually kind of see the point. Blizzard hasn't said any reasoning why, but he, but when I initially saw the announcement, I kind of said, oh, that makes sense, right? And the reason is, is because Blizzard has a long history of making prestige things uh, more scarce as time goes on, right? So, for instance, when you defeat a mythic raid boss in Battle for Azeroth, that boss drops a mount. That mount has a 100% drop rate. It will not drop uh, at that rate when the new expansion comes out. All of those drop rates then change from 100% to 1%, right? So, like, right now, if I, like, if I, if I killed, you know, Jaina Proudmoore in the Battle of Dazara lore, you get this Frost Elemental uh, uh, mount... Now, in Shadowlands, if I go and do that raid, I only have a 1% chance to get that instead of, like, the 100% chance. Uh, PvP items will also be locked behind this, right? Like, the elite-tier PvP gear, you can only get that if you, do, like, do the PvP for it in the season for it. Uh, there's another one for Mythic Plus. Like, if you get a plus 15 on um, in any of the Mythic Plus dungeons or in i'm sorry in all of the mythic plus dungeons in season four you'll earn a mount uh but that mount goes away obviously when shadowlands comes out and so i saw this i was like oh well there's prestige for raiders there's you know prestige for pvpers there's prestige for mythic plus players all of those players prestige items go away with the new expansion uh the prestige item for a gold maker is the brutosaur mount so it makes sense for that to go away and then I, like, look into the comments, and all of a sudden, everyone is furious that they're getting rid of the Brutosaur mount. Uh, I, you know, I don't even really know. I, I guess the argument is just they want to be able to get it in Shadowlands. Um, so I feel like yeah. the, the best argument for this is if they were going to do this, they should have announced it at the beginning of the expansion that way people who kind of assumed that they'd be able to get it later would have maybe been able to focus on, like, getting themselves there, right? Like, for this, this to bring it back to Destiny, these, these triumphs that I'm working on, I have known since week one that these triumphs were going away at the end of the season, and if I wanted to get them, I needed to come, uh, I needed to get them now. Um, and so, like, I was able, you know, I'm able to kind of, like, get myself together accordingly. Um, I, f like, is Shadowlands the release date set yet? No. They probably okay. have about a year, right? Anybody who okay. wants to go get the Brutosaur mount has about a year to do it. Okay, maybe that's enough time that it's not so much of a problem. But I could see, like, if, like, what is it, 11 million gold? Five million. Is, five million. And what was the uh, spider? What is the spider? The spider is two million. All right. Imagine that, like, I want to buy these mounts, right? And I hit 2 million, and it's like, okay, I'll get the, the spider mount, right? And now I have to go build up 5 million to get the Brutosaur, right? Like, if I knew that the Brutosaur was going away, mm -hmm. I'd push to get the 5 million first, buy that, and then get the, the spider yeah. at kind of my leisure. And while not the strongest argument, I can understand why someone would be mad about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, it is also that this is the first time that they're doing it. Like, yeah. I view it as kind of consistent with the way that they do other things. And by the way, you know, like, this is something that I would... In a certain sense, I'm kind of arguing one or the other way. Like, if somebody were to tell me, hey, you know what? If you do a back raid and you get the the Mythic 
mount who, who the fuck cares right give them give them the mount right if you do the back raid or if you if you do pvp you should be able to go and get the elite set or whatever for marks of honor um because that's how that's how it works stop you know gatekeeping people or whatever you know okay that's i think that's a pretty fair argument and under that same argument i would say it is bullshit for the brutosaur to sort of be locked away um but at the same time i also sort of like in a way i've been outvoted on this by the community um like this is like the uh you know not asmodai asmodai is a hearthstone streamer who the fuck is the um Asmongold, like Asmongold hates transmog. He thinks transmog is a really bad system because it allows people who haven't earned, do you know what I mean? Like he basically thinks if you didn't do the, the raid set, right? So for instance, if you didn't raid the Thunder King and you want the Thunder King's gear, you should have raided at that time. It's not our fault that you are, you know, like a pansy who didn't earn it, who didn't, you know, like put in the time and effort that I did to raid every tier or sort of whatever. And this is a, and this is sort of a line of thinking that drives the exclusivity, right? Like the idea is that like, you know, you have to be a PVPer at an elite level in order to get the elite level PVP appearances. That's just end of story. Um, and so I feel like I've been outvoted by that kind of, that kind of player, right? That like these guys want their sort of tokens of achievement to be exclusive and you know real achievements and you know i get that that's fair i kind of like disagree but in but in that same sort of way i don't really think that the the brutosaur being a token of achievement that goes away if you didn't earn five million gold or like bring five million gold into the expansion um makes a certain amount of like makes a certain amount of sense i am by the way going for that brutosaur because all of a sudden i'm just like making gold again i don't really know what happened i'm at like 3.1 million gold so like in the past couple of weeks i've gained 600,000 gold i basically started the expansion with like 2.5 million or something like that um so if anything i just kind of feel nice that there's like a little kick in the pants for me to actually go and maybe that's Maybe that's the uh, that's the actual secret plan here. They yeah. kick everybody. They kick all the people who would like float over the to the next next expansion with like, you know, ish millions of gold, right? Like, you know, like two to four are like suddenly motivated to get to that five million mark and like empty their bank accounts, right? Uh, and so like you actually like drawing a ton of money out of the system that way, because um, uh, like that's probably the easiest way to do it without like. Like, you know, straight up taking money from people. Right. Um, also, maybe that's a way to, like, maybe that's a way for them to, like, actually put in, like, a real gold squish, right? Like, up the, like, if you take that, like, you take these, like, big things out, right? Then you can justify taking more money from people in, like, uh, in, like, repairs or whatever without being like, oh, but I was almost at the five million I needed for the Brutosaur, right? Like, um, Maybe that's another reset coming down the pipe. That's interesting. Um, but yeah, um, I did want to... Uh, we're, we're basically out of time, but um, right before we go, I did want to mention just kind of part of these achievement hunting is um, that something that Destiny does is if you do certain things, you basically unlock the ability to buy a real-world item on the bungee store that otherwise the price of the item is like $999 million. Right. So, wow. um, 
like you don't act, no one actually buys them for that much, right? Like I don't even know if they take it if you tried to buy it at that much. But like you, you, you get a discount code and you can put it in, and it reduces the price from that to like something reasonable, um, or semi reasonable, right? Like I unlocked one for a foam sword, uh, like a high foam sword that's really well modeled, but it's like one hundred seventy dollars. So I'm not buying that. But like, if I do these achievements, I get the opportunity to buy this like little gold emblem with the season of the undying mark on it, mm-hmm. and it also locks, unlocks an in-game title. Um, and I thought that was a very clever way to kind of motivate people to do these things. Um, and uh, do you have do you have any thoughts on that off the top of your head? You know, uh, it, that is definitely interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this sort of like superfluous nature of just some of these things in general. Uh, something that struck me recently um, was there was a while where I was really like hunting for mastery in League of Legends, and I was really really motivated by that, right? And then I started playing the, the StarCraft II co-op missions, right? And the cool thing about the StarCraft II co-op missions is that your commander starts out, and then they have 15 levels, right? Um, and each level, they get something big, right? Like a new unit, or like upgrades to their to their units that you can buy in-game, or just like dip passives, any, any of these others. So there's like, it feels really cool upgrading, you know, your commander um, and playing these... Uh, uh, playing these different missions with them. But at level 15, I was like, oh, well, what the fuck happens at max level of this, like, alternate game mode of StarCraft, right? Like, this is going to fucking suck. You know, like, I'm going to get to f- level 15, and then I'm not going to want to play the guy that I just unlocked all the really cool shit on because there's no reason for me to play him anymore right. because, you know, I, I already unlocked all the cool shit on him. Um, and then I got to level 15 on Tychus. Tychus is really cool because um, he doesn't actually summon an army. He summons five hero units, himself included, that each have, like, a sort of, like, different ability. And you kind of, like, upgrade them. And there's, like, nine different outlaws. And you your outlaw team does, like, neat stuff or whatever. It's, like, that's cool. Um, but then I got there. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, now you have mastery. And all of the experience points you get can be, you know, you can buy mastery points on your high level commanders with them or whatever and i felt this like tangible like relief in a way i was like ah yes the grind continues and at that and at that moment of relief i just had like a small self-awareness where i was like buddy what the fuck you're like how how did that make you feel good why do you care about this thing that is like not real and doesn't exist you know what i mean it's like this is completely worthless nothing they're just bits on your computer do you know what i mean i just like saw through the whole masquerade for a second um and uh and honestly i've had like a weird sense like shaking that feeling in a way like there's a part of me when i was playing diablo last night that was like this is like fleeting and pointless but whatever <laughs> do you know what I mean? yeah no i definitely and know it's what the, you i don't know uh, it's it's a similar feeling I, I guess to kind of like what you're what you're describing um yeah, and how no, because like the different parameters maybe like really rethink things. Like similar thing yesterday, I'm like running around the moon with so like one of the achievements is like get 300 kills with like your melee ability, uh-huh. right? And apparently there's like if you have an empty sword, um, like the the melee kills count like the they have the swords have ammo, mm-hmm. um, uh, so like but it doesn't count if they're powered it only counts if they're empty. So, like, I'm running around the moon with this empty sword, like, slapping hive. And, like, I'm at some point, I'm like, what am I doing? Right? Like, I'm just getting 300 kills with this fucking sword just for, like, the opportunity to pay money for this shiny little piece of metal. Um, but that passed, and I kept doing it. So, you know, uh, at, 
there it always kind of hits that hits that uh that moment for me right that's you they usually have a moment like that right before i quit an mmo um yeah. uh, which is why i play wild the way i do which is like two months at the beginning end of each expansion yeah uh, yeah i mean i'm really excited for the next uh for the next patch to come in because they are bringing that single player to like did you do the mage towers in legion uh yeah at the end of legion before yeah yeah, yeah. okay because they're adding something similar to that um in uh in the whispers of nazoth like patch i honestly feel pretty bad for the whispers of nazoth patch just because like you know battle for azeroth got so poorly received and so much of it has just been about like everybody hates the game or whatever that like or like hates sylvanas or you know whatever else kind of thing that like the the new patch like man we're fighting fucking nazoth he's the last of the old gods trying to bring about a resurgence of the black empire right like and he's just like a, a blip because everybody's so focused on all this other stuff yeah well that's the way it goes i guess yeah um but we are out of time we so are. uh if you'd like to tell us what you thought about, what you think about, like, world scaling or any of the other things we talked about on this podcast, you can reach us at SomeDervousPlayGames at gmail.com or podcast at SomeDervousPlayGames.com. You can follow us at twitch.tv slash SomeDervousPlayGames, which you haven't used in a while, but maybe we'll do someday. Um, and uh, uh, follow us on social media, rate review us on podcast services, give us money on Patreon if you want to. Um uh, that's everything I had, buddy. Do you have anything else you want to promote? Uh, just to let you guys know, over the next couple of weeks, we'll be doing a bit of a series on Watchmen. First the comic, then the movie, then the show, like we alluded to. Um, so, you know, if you want to keep up with the latest Some Derps content, you can you can read the comic, watch the movie, and catch up on the show uh, over the next couple of weeks alongside us. Um, yeah. So, All right. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Look forward to that, people. Uh, uh, All right. Well, if that's everything, uh, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.